Um, this is the fourth, right? This is the fourth week of our series. We've been in the month of July in a series called The Cross, Finding Meaning in the Death of Jesus. I enjoyed the first week. We kind of went Quaker style, which is something we're trying to do around here a little more. Um, as an interdenominational church, we try to learn from all the different parts of the Christian church, and we uh, try to pass the mic a little bit more. Uh, there is biblical premise to that. Uh, in the early church, the church really modeled that. They sit around and they discuss the apostles' doctrine. And even 1 Corinthians 14 went so far as to say that we should let everyone prophesy. Scary word, but it simply means be a, a voice. Allow God to speak through them. Now, we don't claim when we speak that we're necessarily always speaking for God. We just trust that sometimes God does come through unwittingly, even if we don't know it. Um, that's why Paul said, let everyone prophesy, let the others judge. Nobody's going to do that perfectly. I, I love the, the prophetic idea that God, the divine, can speak through people. Um, I, I don't like prophets too much, people who claim that role. Um, I, I don't think that's something we should lay claim to individually as much as we lay claim to it, just as a body. We believe in a prophetic voice that speaks among us. So that first week, we just passed the mic, and I thought it was stellar. Um, the things that you guys had to say wasn't a matter of them being right or wrong. It was just good. And we heard from one another. It was beautiful. The second week, we were um, grieving. There had been more tragedy. And in the wake of that tragedy, um, we just decided to um, spend some time in prayer and reflection. And it led us ultimately to talk about the cross through the lens of that painful week. And uh, we talked about the death of Jesus in terms of the suffering of God. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus was saying that my life is a reflection of God, and what you see in my life, you're actually seeing God. This is a vista. This is a view of God. So if you wonder about God, Jesus was saying, watch what I do. I don't do anything but what I see the Father doing. I don't say anything but what I hear the Father saying. So if you wonder how Jesus, if you wonder how God, this invisible, evaporative being sometime, if you wonder how that vast entity feels about hungry children, um, remember that when Jesus was sitting in a multitude of people who were hungry, he fed them. He, he could not bear their hunger. He pulled the children into his lap and said, this is the kingdom of God. They should never hurt. And if you hurt them, uh, you, you put yourself in a terrible place. So if, if you wonder whether or not God suffers, then look at the cross. Look at the death of Jesus. This is a God who is in ultimate solidarity with us. This is a God who is intractably with us in all things. And so the cross wasn't that six-hour window one Friday where God went on a fact-finding mission and found out how we feel. The cross was an indication of how God has always been in relation to creation. Suffering, subjected, prone, vulnerable. Um, last week, Melissa did a, a great job. I wasn't in here. I actually got to teach the senior high kids, which was really fun. But Melissa did a great job on picking up our own cross. The death of Jesus being an archetype, a model by which we live our own lives. Jesus said, you don't need to take up my cross, but you do need to take up yours. And what does that mean? This week we're going to uh, come down the home stretch. This will be the last week of our series now. But 
I, I just want to say it goes without saying that the death of Jesus, we know this, it lies at the heart of what we call the Christian faith. It's, it's very difficult to think about Christianity on any level. We don't generally wear nativities around our neck. We don't even wear open tombs, stones rolled away around our neck. Um, we put crosses on the wall. We wear them as jewelry. We, we can, it's not conceivable that we can speak about the Christian faith. How do you talk about the Christian faith without talking about the death of Jesus? Um, even in our Gospels, those first recordings, those first narratives that were written down for us, you know, a, a full third of those Gospels are consumed by the Passion Week of Jesus. This is a big deal. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul was summarizing the Christian faith, Paul called it uh, the euangelion. In Greek, that simply, in, in English, that simply means the good news. Euangelion, we transliterate that word from Greek to English, letter by letter. Translation is word for word, but sometimes you literally will transliterate a word from one language to another, and that's a, a letter by letter tracing or replacing. And euangelion you can hear, gives us evangelism, evangelical, evangelize. It simply means the good news. And Paul said that the good news of the Christian faith, listen to this, just right out of the chute, he said, here's the good news. Christ died, and Christ was buried, and Christ rose from the dead the third day and was seen by his disciples. And the list of the disciples was then given, and there was even... Uh, the, um, the statement that over 500 people at one point saw Jesus in that 40-day window between the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, stop for a minute. The good news, Paul said, and Paul was our chief first primary interpreter. Christ died. It's interesting to me that when Paul was summarizing the good news of Jesus, he skipped the birth and life of Jesus. That's always stunned me a bit. At times, I almost feel that it's tragic. Paul never felt that he was exhaustive or complete. Paul was always opening conversations. Uh, we have expected more of Paul sometime than Paul intended for us to expect. So I, I'm not taking exception with Paul, but it is bothersome to me that you could talk about the good news of Jesus and skip right to the death. The good news of Jesus is he died. That's like saying the good news of Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi is they died. No, before they died, the meaning of their death was bound up in their life. And so maybe what Paul was doing here was assuming something that, um, that I'm not so sure that it's the best to assume. The life of Jesus was good news. What he did, what he said was good news. If the death of Jesus did anything, it simply exclaimed the life of Jesus. And the death of Jesus didn't last, Paul said, and maybe this is where Paul gets to the life part. Paul said he was reborn, he was renewed, he resurrected. That life was irrepressible. But with all of that said, can I agree with Paul that the death of Jesus was good news? 
I remember hearing Coretta Scott King before she passed away muse on the death of her husband. She says, to some degree, ironically, she said, I believe it saved his life. His death saved his life. Interpersonally, the load, sometimes the load that is placed upon the shoulders of some human beings is almost unbearable. He was a 27-year-old young pastor, 26-year-old young pastor finishing his doctorate when it fell in his lap to become this de facto leader of a movement that was so vastly beyond him. His skill set was such that he had much horsepower, but just the chassis, the frame of maturation, what 26-year-old has it? Lee, what 26 to 38-year-old man can carry the load that that man carried? And when a load like the load King carried sits on the shoulders of a frail human, especially a 30-year-old human, except that human's name is Jesus, that load will create fissures and frailties. It will reveal flaws. And he was a human, and interpersonally he was breaking under that load. The last three years of his life, he suffered severe depression. In the quiet hours of his life with his friends and those closest to him, he believed himself to be a failure. He was stunned by the rejection of so many he was stunned as he matriculated to Chicago that in the north he found it even worse than he had found it in Selma. He was so discouraged and so disappointed. He mused to his wife on multiple occasions and he was even publicized that he was afraid that his dream had become a nightmare. Heavy loads set upon great lives and those lives often can't sustain it. And Coretta said it was his death that saved his life and his legacy. Can the death of a person like Jesus be good news? Can the death of a person like King be good news? Yes, if it saves their life. And by saving their life, I'm not talking about saving their biological life or keeping them respirate or breathing. I'm talking about saving the essence of them. And if we know anything about Jesus from those early narratives, we know that the people that swelled around him were so enamored by his life that they literally believed that he was going to be a political horse that would drop Rome to its knees. They believed that he was going to establish a kingdom. Even after his death, you remember those closest to him were musing on the road to Emmaus. We thought this was he who would redeem Israel. Many biblical scholars do not paint Judas as an evil man as much as a broken and a confused man who just like the rest of the disciples thought that they had hitched their wagon to the one that was going to bring Rome to its knees and unify the world for a peaceful kingdom. And when he didn't do this, some fled, some like Judas tried to press him to assert himself. Notice, when Jesus submitted to the kiss and began to be battered and bruised, 
Judas didn't stand with those who battered and bruised him, raise his hand and say, I've succeeded. No. Judas backed into the shadows saying, come on. This isn't what I was wanting. And he went out and killed himself. He didn't want Jesus to die. The indication is he wanted to put his neck out for him and he thought he would assert himself, shake off the chains. Jesus didn't do that. Confused. That's why when Peter stood around the campfire a few hours later and the woman stood there and she said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? He said, I don't know him. And he wasn't lying. That was not cowardice. He was telling the truth. I don't know him. Why didn't they know him? They could not frame why a life that splendid would choose to die. What a waste. All of them, from Judas to Peter, they all thought this was a waste. But Jesus didn't think so. And die he did. Immediately, they began to try to frame the death of Jesus. And immediately, they did not do well. They, they thought it was a waste. They went back to their nets. They went back to their jobs. It was just a tragedy. And then there was this resurrection, this incredible event. And they began to see him and experience him. And those fellows on the road to Emmaus who were walking along saying, we thought we knew what his life meant. And Jesus comes up alongside them. They don't even know that this is Jesus. And the Bible says immediately this traveler with them said, why are you so forlorn? And they said, because our Lord died. Because everything that we ever thought was true just got nailed to a cross. Every bit of our faith just got buried in a borrowed tomb. They could not frame the death of Jesus and instead of revealing himself as the resurrected Christ the Bible said this traveler just revealed himself as someone who was schooled in the Jewish text and he began to quote scripture to them explaining to them how everything they had ever believed in actually said Jesus needed to die later that evening when those same disciples were with the rest of the disciples Jesus walked through the wall came in and was with them and immediately sat down and opened their minds and opened the scripture that they might understand that Jesus had to die. From that moment, the Christian church began wrestling with something. And wrestle is what we do. The scripture, a church service, a preacher, a religion, a denomination misses the point if it tries to come up with final answers and ultimate orthodoxies. Ptolemy did not settle cosmology. Hippocrates did not settle medicine. We open right conversations about right things and people continue having those conversations. It's amazing to me in every discipline of life from cosmology to medicine, every area of life, we believe in an unfolding revelation and accumulating wisdom except in spirituality and we try to fix the best statements and the best ideas and people thousands of years ago. Why do we do that? You say, well, isn't that what Jesus said to do? Not even close. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I've got so much to tell you, but you can't bear it now. The first century can't bear it. The first millennia can't bear it. One space of time, one group of people, one mind can't bear it. 
God spanned the universe and Ptolemy looked at it and God said, I can't get it into your head, all that's out there. Dr. Britton, you were telling my 10-year-old this morning about what you grew up with and your understanding of cosmology. One galaxy and perhaps another galaxy nearby. And in a 50-year life, we've got 500 billion more galaxies. Wow, what happened? Truth didn't change. Truth reveals. Jesus said, I have so much to tell you, but you can't bear it now. But listen to what he said. I love this. Jesus said, but when the Holy Spirit comes... He will continue to lead and guide you into all truth. And this is really beautiful. He will teach you all things about me. Wow. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian church is to continue an unfolding revelation, to continue to teach us. And not only to unfold a revelation about who we are and what creation is, but Jesus even smiled and said, I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to tell you some things about me that I couldn't even tell you. He's going to teach you all things about me. And that's exactly what happened in the Christian church. We were settled in this idea of incarnation. We knew something spectacular had happened in the life of Jesus. We knew something central, something cosmic, something profound and transformative had happened in the life of Jesus. And we knew that we should place our focus on him. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God's Spirit began to help us interpret what this life meant. It was a tragic mistake for us to make the decision that the early first century church was the ultimate archetype and fixer of orthodoxy. They were but the infant of interpretation. They were our first interpreters. And when we look back to their lives and how the Holy Spirit worked in their lives, we understand that they interpreted Jesus through the lens of their worldview, through the lens of culture, through the lens of present information and language. They interpreted Jesus and they looked at his death. And in a first century context, they brilliantly, they brilliantly decided that Jesus had become a ransom for all of us. For the first four centuries of the Christian church, we wrestled with that statement that fell from the mouth of Jesus, that Jesus would give his life as a ransom. We knew that this was a substitution of sorts. We knew that somehow the paying of a ransom was to set someone free. And the early church wrestled for its first four or five centuries until finally, in great debate, the early church fathers decided that the one holding us captive was Satan. Alan, they had been wrestling forever. Was it Satan? Was it sin? Was it death? And they finally settled in a great debate that the ransom was paid to Satan. For the next five centuries after that, they argued if they had gotten it right. This was called ransom theory, ransom theology. Somehow, Adam and Eve had done something that got all of us held captive, and Jesus finally went in with a briefcase full of about $5 million or whatever it was, Paid the ransom, and we were released. Ransom theory. It was a brilliant appropriation of the life and death of Jesus in a first century context. In their cosmology, there was a, a great cosmic war, and that war was between one Satan and one 
God and Satan had pulled off the ultimate ploy and had stolen God's child. You ever seen this? And God paid the ransom and the children were set free. The earliest Christian interpreters, most of them coming from, in the earliest days, coming from Jewish backgrounds, said, no, 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 I know what he was. He was a scapegoat. Back in the Old Testament, we accumulated our sins as a community of people, and once a year we would gather together to lament our corporate, our communal, our combined sins, and we would take this poor animal, we would take this goat, and, and we would stand, and our priest and proxy for us would put their hands on this poor animal's head because we knew we couldn't live with our sin. We knew God couldn't live with our sin. We had to get rid of our sin. So we would transfer our sin to this poor animal. And you get this goat, and the priests stand there, and they put their hands on the And all of the people, somehow they transmit and some sacrificial prayer, their sins to the priest and through those priest's hands onto that animal's head. And finally, the animal is driven and whipped into the wilderness. And often, for days, that animal will try to wander its way back into the camp. But even the children are taught to stand on the outskirts of the community with sticks and to drive that goat. Why? Because we're trying to get rid of our sin. That's a scapegoat. And Jesus was our scapegoat. We couldn't get rid of our sin, so we put all of our sin on him. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Brilliant first century appropriation of the death and life of Jesus in a world where scapegoating was a religious idea, a religious right, not only in our religion, but in many others. And then, of course, the Lamb, the Lamb of God. One step up from scapegoat was instead of driving the goat into the wilderness, instead of driving the goat into the wilderness, we lay our hands on that goat, we lay our hands on that animal, and we kill it, and we let its blood bleed out. We take the life of that animal and we offer that animal to God in an effort to appease God. Lambs, bulls, goats, turtle doves for the poor. Life in proxy for our life, spilled and given. Where did we get the idea that God needed blood? Where did we get the idea that God somehow had to punish, had to perpetrate in a penal form on somebody, either individually or corporately, the weight and the gravity of their sin. Where did we get that idea? In the 18th, 19th century, when social anthropologists really began to study people groups, as we began to travel the entire world and find these people, indigenous people groups that were living in sustained environments that were consistent with life four and 5,000 years ago. We begin to study these people. And we begin to notice in the development of their religion 
in the development of all of their religions that there was commonality. We begin to understand extrapolating somewhat backwards because there's not perfect information here, but there is good academic extrapolation. We begin to understand that in the earliest days, people did not have a clear, devo- a clear delineated idea of a creator God. Our earliest idea of spirit and the other side, our earliest ideas, had nothing to do with that of a benevolent creator who set all of this in order. Our earliest ideas of the spirit, the other, the invisible world came from the idea that we believed that we believe life persisted even beyond biological death. 60,000 years ago, we now know Neanderthals were burying their dead in such a way as to indicate that they believed their dead went on after death. And believing, always intuiting, that biological cessation could not end a person's consciousness, we knew these people were transcending. They were moving into an invisible world, and we begin to surmise over thousands of years that the folk who were really good in this life, Jeff, they were really good in the next life. And you know what? Those folk that were mean and incorrigible in this life, guess what they were in the next life? And we began to sense that they were responsible for all of the bad stuff that happened here. And our sense of ancestralism, our sense that these people went on to the next world, it mixed with our sense of spiritism because we were also at the same time developing the idea that things like wind and fire and trees and mountains had spirits behind them. And all of this blended together until finally we believed that on the other side, on the invisible side of reality, there were beings more powerful than us. And these beings were responsible for all the stuff that we couldn't explain in this world, like tsunamis and cyclones and tornadoes. These powerful beings were responsible for all of this. Even to this day, your insurance company calls a flood what? And if New Orleans is flooded, preachers like Jerry Falwell, and I don't say this pejoratively, he said it. Pat Robertson has built an entire network on these kinds of things. New Orleans gets flooded, bad things happen. Why? Because God is punishing, right? Acts of God. What we know is our earliest sensibilities about these divine creatures. Ultimately, those spirits and ancestors began to develop through their strength of power into what we knew as gods. And our earliest idea of this pantheon of gods was that they were angry. Study it for yourself. The earliest ideas of God, they were angry. And I want to tell you this. They they were not only angry, they were immoral. They were not bound by a system of morality. Go back even 2,000 years ago to developed religions of the Roman and the Greeks. The Romans and the Greeks had pantheons of God. And when you look at these gods in the sky, it was one vast grand soap opera. They were immoral. They were evil. They were capricious. They were whimsical. You couldn't count on them. We were better than the gods we had to serve. 
And then came the Jewish people, our people. And we laid a great innovation, unfolding truth, unfolding revelation, spirits and ancestors, divine beings, angry, whimsical, capricious, acts of God. And the Jewish people came along and said, no, no. A God came to a man named Abram and his father, Terah. And that God said, I want you to get up and I want you to get out from these gods and I want you to come with me. And God led this man to a country. And God said, look up. You want cosmology? Look up. As many as the stars of the heaven, that's the cosmology of your own soul and lineage, so shall your descendants be. And I'll bless all the nations of the earth through you. It was, it was a eureka moment. A God who wanted to bless, a God who wanted to do good, a God who wasn't capricious and whimsical, but wanted good for the earth. This was our people. And Abram followed that God until one day that God said, that son born of your old age, kill him. And Abraham must have cursed. I thought you were different. It doesn't take a careful study of that area north of the Persian Gulf where Abram was said to have come from. It was a world ripe and permeated with child and human sacrifice for hundreds, even thousands of years before Abraham's time. Abraham didn't look up and say, Kill my son? What are you talking about? I've never heard of such. Abraham shook and held Sarah and said he's no different than all the others. One more God. Angry. One more God who shoots bullets at our feet to watch us dance like court jesters. One more God who plays with us like fools. One more God who gives us a boy and lets us fall in love and then says, give him back whimsically. You know why? Just because he's big enough and he can. One more. Same song, 94th verse. Sarah says, Daddy, don't do it. Abraham says, what are we going to do? How do you tell God no? And he's climbing up a hill, and this kid says to him, what are we doing, Dad? And he says, well, we're going up to the hill to sacrifice to God. And the boy gets nervous and says, we're, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And a father's heart breaks. That's what bad religion does. It breaks people's heart. It tells people things about God that aren't true. As if life isn't hard enough, we have to compound that with a God that makes it harder. If it's not enough to worry about my 17-year-old getting home on time in a car, I've got, about, I've got to worry about when God's going to get mad enough at me for my mistakes to take him back. You know, I mean, people I've sat with in the Christian faith in hospitals that have not only had to lose their child, but they've had to wonder what they did wrong. My God. 
And Abram looks at that boy and his heart breaks and he says, God will provide. And he thinks to himself, I hope. And a knife is raised and a boy's eyes flinch and a father's heart breaks and a ram stirs in the bush. And now we can ask the question, in the story, did God tell him to kill his son? Yes. In the story, did God want him to kill his son? No. In the story, did God need him to kill his son? No. Then why would God tell him to kill his son? Pedagogy. Teaching. And Abraham hails from a space of time, that legend, that myth, that base story and the Christian message from a time around 18 to 2100 B.C. And we begin to notice all around the world at that time People groups that did not even have the capacity to cross-pollinate, who were not interrelated, we begin to notice a shift from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. And humans are making progress. Not from an animal's perspective, but we can now say that it was better that it became bulls and goats and turtle doves then it was our babies, our children, our virgins. The sacrifice was still needed. Because in every major world religion, in the third millennia BC, every major world religion, the first to take, the first to take exception with this was a religion from the seventh century BC, some 2,000 to 2,500 years later called Buddhism. Buddhism was the first religion to say, we don't believe the gods are angry. The other religions do not know what to do with, a, with Buddhism and a religion that says the gods aren't angry, so we have decided that Buddhism is non-theistic because we can't imagine a god that's not angry, so we just call them non-believers in God because we can't frame the idea of a god who isn't angry, a god who is intractably one with creation. It's interesting to me. But in the time of Abraham... As religious sensibilities developed, we do see three chief characteristics of every major world religion. And, and this is generalization because semesters. So you, you could get a PhD in this information and still not scale the full mountain of this material. But suffice to say, as every religion developed in that third millennia BC, as religions began to develop, religions all developed so that we could relate to the gods. Now, if we're relating to gods that are angry, then religion has to take as its chief purpose, how do we deal with an angry god? Three things developed, Doug. In every major world religion, three things developed. The first was a priestly class. Of course a priestly class develops. What is a priestly class? It's a group of professionals that say, you have a pain, you have a problem, we have an answer. Always. That's the way commerce develops. That's the way economies develop. That's the way people do life. Somebody has a problem, somebody's going to arise and fix it. We had a problem. The gods were angry. They were tsunamiing us. They were telling us to kill our kids. They were doing terrible things to us. The gods were angry. The gods gave life and the gods took life. Priestly class in every religion develop who say we are experts in this and for a small phenomenal, I mean small nominal fee, 
We will help you. Am I talking about my industry? Priests always develop. And I do not believe that these priests were always Elmer Gantries or insincere people. I believe for the most part priestly caste developed because these people were also, also people who believed the gods were angry and believed that professional skills had to be developed to help with that. Nobody wants to go sit down with the IRS by themselves, so your CPA goes with you. Second thing that developed in every one of these religions, and ours included, was the idea of altars. What was an altar? An altar was a river. An altar was an outcropping. It was generally a topographical place, a geographical space that gave some sense of capacity. We didn't first hew out our altars we first found altars topographically in the earth. And we would come to these rivers in every religion. We would come to these spaces, these altars. And the idea was we would come to one side and the angry God would come to the other. So you had a demilitarized zone. And our priestly class told us in these spaces the gods will put down their weapons and you can do bidding with the gods safely here demilitarized zones, set aside spaces. These altars finally developed roofs and became temples, houses of worship, holy places where you could safely come into the presence of God. Even then they were scary because ours had the most holy place that once a year the holiest person among us could go in. But even then we'd tie a rope around their ankle, put bells around the bottom of their dress. And if the bells quit ringing, we knew something had gone wrong and we'd pull their dead body out of there. Because at any time, the angry God could get you if you made a wrong move. The third thing that developed past altars and temples and priests was the idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice was self-punishment. Self-punishment ahead of the punishment that is due you. Sacrifice was me along with priestly help because I could never do it completely myself along with professional help coming to a demilitarized place and putting my best on the altar and pleadingly looking into the heavens and saying, is it enough? Is my firstborn enough? Is my little girl enough? Is the best animal from my field enough? Will you not be angry now? Every religion, not ours, every religion. Professionals, sacred places, and sacrificial offerings. All of them because the gods were angry. But again, a Jewish innovation. And maybe I'm particular to ours because I know it best. But a profound innovation arose amongst our people. Our people, somewhere between Abraham and Moses, congealed the idea that they had begun to see foment in the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is, yes, the gods are angry, but I want to tell you about the gods. They may be angry, but they are not whimsically angry. They are angry with cause. That's an innovation, and that's a step up. Because if the gods are angry with no reason, who would you rather have, an angry moral person or an angry immoral person? 
And the Jewish innovation, Paul, was the gods are angry, but they're angry for a reason. We have broken covenant. We are living wrong. We are living, we are living in sin. And our gods are not capriciously angry. Our gods are justifiably angry because we have made a mistake. And if we will correct and repair that mistake, our God or gods will not be angry. Because our earliest Jewish ancestors were not monotheistic. They believed in many gods, and their problem throughout the entire course of the Old Testament was they were always going after other gods. And God didn't start out immediately by speaking to them and saying, listen, I want you to get one thing straight. There's only one of us. In the Ten Commandments, God said to them, let's make progress. Don't have any other gods ahead of me. Did you hear that? Just don't have any ahead of me. That's not monotheism. That's monolatry. That's many gods but one supreme. It was the sixth century in exile that we finally came home with a prophetic vision of only one God and beside him there was no other. A clear idea of one God who was also male. But that's a subject for another day. <laughs> developing, developing, developing sacrifices. And our people said the gods aren't angry without cause. Our God is angry because of sin. But we believed that our God was not only loving and moral, but a part of the morality of God was beyond God's deep care and love for us. God was also, this was the word, holy. And by holy, we believed that meant God was so pure that God was incapable of being in the presence of anything less than perfect. And we defined God in those prophetic centuries prior to Christ, we defined God as a God whose holiness was measured by God's incapacity to be with sinful people. And now we had a tension that had to be resolved. Thankfully, it did not have to be resolved completely, and 2,000 years later, we are still wrestling with this truth, just like astronomers are still wrestling with what Ptolemy first was mesmerized with 23 centuries ago. Dave, Andy, 110 years ago, we were still bloodletting with leeches. Think about the exponentiality of medicine. Why? is spirituality the only of life's disciplines that was supposed to shut off in Revelation 2,000 years ago? Why? Jesus never said that. He said, I'm going to keep teaching you things even about me. And Jesus died. And in a world completely sacrificial, a world with gods everywhere, whimsical, capricious, and immoral, we had a central message that there was one God, that God was moral, but we were still wrestling with how that God viewed sin. 
We were still wrestling with whether or not that God had the capacity to be with us in our sin. And into that world, Jesus came as the express image of God. You think he wasn't trying to bust up in the middle of that argument because he never spent time with religious people. He went straight for what we called sinners and ate with them. And said, when you've seen me, you haven't seen the properly equipped second person in the Trinity who has a buffer around his humanity by which he can meet with sinful people. No, he said, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When you've seen me, you have seen the capacity of God to be with people as dark and dirty When you've seen me, you have seen the redefinition of holiness. Holiness is not God's incapacity to be with brokenness. Holiness is the very unwillingness of God to be anything other than with us in our brokenness. This is the holiness of God. And we couldn't hear it. And Jesus walked around doing two things. Seldom in the synagogue, seldom with preachers, seldom with holy people. He sat down and defied all Semitic culture, even Jewish culture, by sitting down and breaking bread and handing it to a prostitute, even eating off of the same morsel and drinking from the same cup. And we crucified him. Not because God couldn't stand our sin, but because we could not stand God standing our sin. That's why. I have a few people who are getting it. (laughs) When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the other thing Jesus did besides drink out of the same cup with tax collectors and prostitutes is he went around everywhere, Jeff, saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the old fellow that stood beside him at the cross and took care of his mother till she died named John, who was the beloved disciple When John was writing his final words in the epistles, John said, I finally realized love, when it fully matures, cast out all fear. And all fear includes the fear of God. Somebody said, wait, I thought Scripture said that the fear of the Lord is is wise. No, no, no. Scripture said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just the beginning. It's not the maturation. I've had two kids, and this morning I looked at a 17-year-old. I had had interaction with a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old. And both of them were being corrected on separate incidences. And there was a different level of fear and friendship in both of those. And it wasn't based on my heart. It was based on their capacity. I looked at a boy whose jawline has filled out and his shoulders are bigger. And a few days ago, he told me he could take me down. I laughed at him. And before I knew it, he had taken me down. (laughs) I lay on my back and I could not move. He had me tied up in a pretzel. And my ego would not allow me to be completely honest. And I told him, I could get out of this, but I would have to hurt you, and I love you too much, so let me up, please. (laughs) 
He's moving from I told you so, and he's moving from fear of punishment. We are moving three steps forward, two steps backwards, in all kinds of halting fashions. We are moving into friendship. And I can say that his fear of me was only the beginning of our relationship. It is not the end. I I stood beside my 71-year-old dad the other day. And I thought, when did I get this much taller than you? As life elevates me and life shrinks him in all sorts of ways. And he is friend. I don't fear him anymore. Our relationship has not gone to pot. Our relationship has matured. It is not his love that has shifted. It is my capacity that has grown. Did Jesus have to die? Oh, what a multi-splendored complex question. In my heart, I cannot imagine a death of that magnitude that was unnecessary. But the central question for us today as we wrestle is did Jesus have to die so God could be comfortable to be with us? And I think the growing answer inside the hearts of the Christian church, and I say hearts plural, I think the growing answer is no. Ted, God never needed sacrifice or priestly classes or altars. We never needed the demilitarized zone because God never was armed. We never needed the professional to help us because God was never coming to get us. And we never needed the sacrifice to punish ourselves in pre-punishment to offset God's punishment because God was never coming to punish. We are learning as the Holy Spirit continues to unfold. We are learning more and more about Jesus. The question then is on the cross Was Jesus offering his life and blood to the Father saying, can you be with them now? Or was Jesus on the cross saying to humans, can you believe that he's never been anywhere other than with you? Even in death, God is with you. Is the cross giving a holy God the capacity to be with dirty people without sullying God's self? Or is the cross... Jesus saying, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What more does God have to do? Can you believe me now? And this is why I tell the story often, and I will close with it. The story of every human person, the story of the human family, the story of our relationship, the story of our salvation hero's journey with God. There was a father who had two sons, and the youngest of those sons, like the eldest of that, those two, was born in union with the father at home. Listen. The prodigal was born in union with the father. The prodigal did not take a journey to become a child of the father. The prodigal took a long, circuitous journey to come home to the reality of who he had always been. But he was born in union with the father. And the prodigal took a journey that looks like the human journey, the evolution of religious thought and idea, 
The prodigal could, could not believe. If you want to fall, we have a fall. The fall is to not believe you are born in union with God. That's the fall. The fall is to be born in the Father's house and to not recognize the fullness of your privilege. You want to fall? That's the fall. The fall is to be a child of the Father. The, the fall is to be a child of God and to not be able to appropriate that emotionally, psychically, in every way and to leave home and to go looking for love in all the wrong places, to go looking for satisfaction and meaning and to take that long, winding journey until finally through sin brokenness, rebellion, it's all still there. The pieces of the puzzle are still there. It's simply how you understand the story until finally at the farthest point away from the Father, which is no distance from the Father because David a thousand years before after God's own heart said, if I made my bed in hell, you were still with me. If I took my flight and went to the deepest ocean, the dirtiest hog pen, you were still with me. And that young prodigal, the Bible said, came to himself and said, I will arise, I am a son, I have a father, I want to go home. And he did not turn his face to a salvation journey of becoming something he wasn't. His salvation was to come home to whom he had always been. And as he made his way home, this is the journey of religion. We finally understood that the gods weren't angry. We finally understood the gods could be appeased. We finally understood we could go home but we had to go home with a price. We had to go home with self-sacrifice. And all the way home, that boy said, I think he'll take me back, but the only way he's going to do it is I'm going to tell him, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. I will never be a full child again. There's always going to be an asterisk by my name. It's never going to be full privilege. Just make me a slave in the back of your house. That's what I'll tell him because I know that my father's angry and justifiably so. The old view was my father's angry and the old man doesn't make sense to me. i got to get out of here. The new revelation is he's angry and he deserves to be and I'm bad and he shouldn't love me. Please just make me a slave. And as the boy's coming home with the sacrifice of his lips, just make me a slave. I will sacrifice everything. Just make me a slave. The Bible says that on the other end of that, the God that he thought was justifiably angry came running down the road. And when he saw the boy, the boy winced like we all wince in the presence of God because surely that hand is not coming to caress, but those hands fell on top of that boy. And an old man began to heave and began to cry. And as he cried and said, you're home, I've been looking every day of my life for you. Where you been, boy? Underneath the blows of that love, that boy said, I am not worthy. I don't deserve this. You are wrong, Dad. I am bad. Just make me a slave. And the Bible says that the old man stood up and said, Get a ring. Get a robe. Somebody kill a calf. And an animal died in a distance to throw a religious party. And the question is, did the boy coming home have to sacrifice an animal to bring the father out and give the capacity to the father to forgive? Or did the father have to kill a calf to say, 
hush boy, it's a party of grace. You were forgiven before the animal ever died. This is why Christianity must not throw away the death of Jesus. This is why questions of scapegoat and ransom and substitutionary penal atonement are not questions of right and wrong, but they are questions of a developing revelation. And so when people ask me, do you believe in substitutionary penal atonement? Yes, it is a part of our history. It is a concentric ring at the center of our faith. It was a brilliant appropriation in a sacrificial world. But Jesus wasn't done in the first century through the Holy Spirit teaching us about the love of God. And I am not ashamed that there are crosses on my wall and to call myself Christians and to say, yes, I do not believe the death of Jesus was wasted. The question is simply, why did Jesus die? And I believe Jesus died for the same reason the animal skins were created in the garden. God coaxed them out, took off their covering, and they blushed. And the animal skins covered them, the first covering in Scripture. And that covering was not to cover the sin of eating the fruit. It covered their loins, for they had not sinned. Their loins, for they felt shame. The human fall was not first sin that had to be covered for God's holiness to be satisfied. The first human fall was shame, our sense that God could not handle us completely, even in our brokenness. And those ideas are developing. Forgive me for taking so long today, but this is central, this is beautiful, and this is the gospel. And there is deep and abiding meaning in the death of Jesus. And if we are here for another 2,000 years as the Christian church, we will continue to survey the wondrous cross of Jesus on which the Prince of Glory died, for we have yet to exhaust it. Can you say amen? amen. Thank you, God, for the beauty of what we call the gospel. And thank you that we are learning more and more and more about the holiness and the heart of this God we serve. We rejoice and we receive your love today knowing that it's not animals or humans that cover a multitude of sins. It is the divine and gracious love of God. We receive that covering today. We embrace your cross and ours. Thank you for helping us find meaning, true meaning, the meaning in the death of Jesus. Pray this still in the beautiful name of the one crucified, Jesus. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go and be good to one another. We'll see you at family service next week.